All right, so if you're new here, welcome to First Christian. Um, we do a series every January uh, where we run it for three or four weeks, and it's just called You Asked For It. And uh, what we do is we just write down specific questions, and then we try and give a very biblically-based answer uh, in four to six minutes. And so I know that that's not enough time for a fully in-depth answer. And so if there's any answers I'm giving that you have more questions about or you want to push back or you're like, yeah, I don't know if that's right, man, I, I love that. Uh, call me, let's, uh, let's grab coffee, I'll buy you a cup of coffee or I'll make you a cup of church coffee, which is not very good, but, but I'll make it for you and we can continue to uh, talk it over. So uh, we always kind of ramp up the first week a little bit slowly. Uh, this year we have some great questions, so next week, uh, this week we're talking over uh, rapture, we're going to talk over who owns the church, uh, we're going to talk over priorities, how we know we get to heaven. Next week, just so you can be thinking ahead, uh, we're gonna, there's a question about gun control, uh, there's a question about conspiracy theories, uh, there's a question about is Jesus interested in politics, so we're going to jump into some really, really good stuff. Not that today's not good stuff, but we're jumping into some, some pretty, uh, pretty exciting stuff next week. So, uh, just so you can, that's kind of my little, little commercial for next week. So, uh, with that, let's jump in. We always ask three questions about each question that we answer. The first question is we ask, is this a salvation issue? Because there are some things that are salvation issues and some things that are not. Today, we're going to look at the question, how do I know I go to heaven? That is a salvation issue, right? Because it deals with our salvation. But then we're going to also ask the question, uh, there's a question about... Uh, pre-tribulation rapture? That is a really interesting question, but that is not a salvation issue question. And so we want to be clear, is this a salvation issue? Because if it's a salvation issue, we better make darn sure we get it right. If it's not a salvation issue, we still want to get it right, but, but we don't have to be as firm in that as we are in our salvation issue stuff. The second question we ask is, is the Bible clear about this? Does Scripture clearly address this? Uh, because we want to be, where Scripture is clear, we want to be really clear. But if Scripture is not clear about it, something, then we want to be okay not being as clear about it. Basically, we don't want to speak where Scripture doesn't speak, but we also want to make sure that we speak where Scripture speaks. And so we want to have the wisdom to not over-speak for Scripture, but also not under-speak. And so, so, and so that's just that's tricky, and that, that takes study of Scripture. The third thing we ask is, does this affect the way that I live my life? Uh, because again, like pre-tribulation rapture, that doesn't really affect the way that I live my life. Um, whereas, um, is salvation necessary? Or how do I know I get to heaven? That affects the way I live my life. So we want to spend a little more time on things that affect our life, that the Bible speaks clearly about, and that are salvation issues. So, with that, let's jump into the first question. This is my, I think, one of my favorite questions. Maubry uh, Bowen wrote this down, and she just wrote, Jake, do you own the church? And so I thought, you know, I, I read that. The easy answer is no. No, I don't own the church. We're going to dig into that. But I thought that would be a good way for us to, uh, especially if you're new here, for us to just review and go over how we function as First Christian Church. So the next one, let's ask those three questions. Is this a salvation issue? No, it is not. Is Scripture clear about this? Very. Scripture is very clear that Jake does not own the church. Does this affect my life? Yes, in that we're all here and we're a part of the family of God right here. And this is our local body of believers. The way that we function uh, is affected by who owns the church. So short answer that who owns the church? Jesus owns the church. 
Uh, I mean, there are a ton of scriptures we can look at for that, but uh, today we'll just read Colossians 1, 17 and 18. And this is what we read from the Apostle Paul. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, the church, I guess, if, if anybody owns the church, the church is Jesus. Uh, way back in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter recognized who Jesus was, Jesus said, yeah, on that confession, on that foundation of your confession, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell aren't going to stop it. And so when we talk about who owns the church, it's Jesus. Then we have First Christian Church. Now, First Christian Church is a non-denominational Christian church. And non-denominational, all that means is that we don't have a hierarchy of leadership. So we don't have like a bishop or a ruling council somewhere in another city uh, that hands down directives that we then follow. Uh, whereas a lot of denominations like Methodist, um, um, let's see, Presbyterian Church, uh, the Catholic Church, all of those would have denominational hierarchies, what we would call them. But you know, they, they would have kind of ruling boards and then bishops. And then you know, in the Catholic Church, it would go up all the way to the Pope. Whereas for us, we're an independent, non-denominational church. So what that means is that we are run by a group of four elders. So our four elders are Tim Barth, Brett Carpenter, Roy Koch, and Wes Phillips. So those guys get together every month. We have an elders meeting, open elders meeting. It's always the second Monday of every month. And the elders are responsible for overseeing the doctrine of the church, overseeing me as the pastor of the church, and then overseeing... Um, just kind of the, the, the big pieces of First Christian Church. So under the elders then is our staff. And we have two full-time staff members and then three part-time staff members. So I, I serve as the pastor of First Christian Church, so I report directly to the elders. So they do my evaluation. I'm responsible for, for what they give me to do. And then my, my job at the church is Sunday morning sermons, preaching, um, making sure our adult Sunday school, adult small groups are going. Uh, I work with our missions department. And I also oversee buildings, grounds, and then, and then um, have at least a hand in church finances and just keeping track of those as well as overseeing our other staff. And then our other full-time staff member is Colin Barth. Colin's our associate pastor, and Colin basically oversees birth to 18 um, and young families at the church. And then Colin is also pretty involved just because he's really, really sharp with tech stuff. Uh, so he helps with our worship and then helps with a lot of our online presence. Uh, and then we have Debbie Olson is our office manager. Uh, Alex Lamb is, uh, cleans the church for us. And then Jamie Phillips works with our youth group. And uh, Debbie and Alex and Jamie are all our part-time employees. And then on top of that, we have eight deacons. And so eight deacons, um, and those come out of just a biblical description of deacons. You can find that in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1. And deacons are basically servant leaders in a first Christian church. They're servant leaders who have particular areas of ministry. So our eight deacons are Evan Wolf and Mike Getman, and they work with finance. Matt Snyder and Corey Phillips work with youth. Uh, Corey Hersberger works with kids. Cal Songer works with worship. Uh, and then Tom Cole and Dean Allen are kind of our deacons at large. So... In a nutshell, uh, that's kind of how we function as a church. We have eight deacons, we have four elders, and we have five staff members. Jesus owns the church, 
And then you guys, as part of the church, one of the things that we always do is uh, we try hard to always be open and accessible as far as feedback goes. And so I know any of our deacons, any of our elders, and any of our staff members would love to talk with you or hear from you um, just feedback that you have about the church. I mean, we know that we don't always get everything right. Um, we know we do some things really well, and we know that there are areas we need to grow in. And man, if there's something we could be doing better, we absolutely want to hear about it and want to be talking, talking with you guys and getting feedback. So in four to six minutes, that is a nutshell of how we function as First Christian Church. With that, let's jump to question number two. This one's a big one. Uh, how do I know if I go to heaven? All right, so let's ask those three questions. Is this a salvation issue? Yes. Is Scripture clear about this? Very. Does it affect the way I live my life? Yes, it does. An easy answer or straightforward answer is this. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, another verse that's really clear, Acts 16, 30 and 31. Uh, this was a story. You can read the rest of the story if you want. There's two guys, Paul and Silas. They end up in jail, and there's a jailer. And then uh, there's this miraculous, uh, all the doors of the jail open, all the chains fall off, uh, but none of the prisoners leave. And back in those days, if you were a jailer and you had a prisoner escape, uh, then you just faced whatever penalty the prisoner faced. And so if you had a, a prisoner on death row, then you would just be put to death. And so the jailer wakes up in the middle of the night and realizes all the doors are open, the chains are broken, and he looks, but none of the prisoners are gone. So he's talking to Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas tell him about Jesus. And so this is where we pick up, Acts 16.30. So the jailer brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So how do I know if I go to heaven? Well, if I follow Jesus, then I go to heaven. And, and that's, not a, that's not a feeling thing. That is just a concrete truth. And Scripture talks about this over and over and over, all the way through the New Testament. That you know, the, the, we, we would call it the meta-narrative. The big story of human history is that God created a perfect world, and then people didn't follow God's laws. And so this thing called sin entered the world. Sin, brokenness, uh, you know, missing the mark that God has for us. And so then people are broken, and people can't go to heaven broken. And so God set up this rescue plan where He sent His Son Jesus to come be, uh, be human, live for 33 years on earth. He was put to death. He rose from the dead. And He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one gets to heaven except through me. And so if we follow Jesus, then we go to heaven. If we don't follow Jesus, we don't go to heaven. Scripture is crystal clear on that. And sometimes we follow Jesus and we're like, you know, I don't know that I feel like this huge change come about me. There's this whole process of growing to be like Jesus. But, but there, is, there is some danger in saying, well, I'm going to follow my feelings. And, and if, if I follow Jesus and I don't feel all warm and bubbly inside, uh, then I'm just going to discard that. Because the, the truth is, like, truth doesn't change based on my feelings. So how do I know that I go to heaven? Well, if I've decided to follow Jesus, if I've committed my life to follow Him, and, and there's a lot that goes with that, and we can unpack that. But if I'm a follower of Jesus, I go to heaven. If I'm not a follower of Jesus, I don't go to heaven. And I, I don't know a, a clear way to answer that question. 
Let's jump to question number three. What does the Bible teach about pre-tribulation rapture? All right, now I know some of us are sitting here going, you know, I don't know why we even need to talk about this. So we're going to talk about this a little bit because I think there are some really important principles in here as far as like as we get into topics next week and the week after, um, knowing how to look at Scripture and look at Scripture in context is a really big deal. So just so we're all clear on what we're talking about, yeah, go back one slide. The uh, no, back up to the pre-tribulation rapture. So there's a uh, um, pre-tribulation rapture uh, refers to rapture, which a lot of us uh, at least know of the idea of rapture. And, and rapture is the belief that at some point when Jesus comes back, a lot of people from earth are going to, Christians are going to go up and join Jesus in the clouds, go to heaven. And, you know, that was kind of the base for like the Left Behind series, you know, where all the, all the Christians go up and all the lost people stay here. And, um, and then the pre-tribulation part of that is, you know, when you read Revelation, you read about, a lot of people call it the tribulation, uh, but there's uh, this belief that there's going to be seven years of just all this famine and plague and all this stuff. And so there's a belief, um, or some people would argue for, a rapture where Christians go up to be with Jesus before the tribulation starts. And so that's what we're talking about. So let's go to the next slide. Is this a salvation issue? No, it is not. Uh, honestly, what you believe about the rapture doesn't affect your salvation because if you follow Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't follow Jesus, you don't. Is Scripture clear about this? Yes, it is. And, and that's why I want us to dig into this question. And then the third question is, does this affect my life? Uh, honestly, no. Um, unless you're trying to play Russian roulette with your life and you're like, if I can figure out when the rapture is, I'll start following Jesus right before that and then I'm good. And that's just dangerous. So don't, don't do that. You know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't suffer fools well. Okay, so talking about the rapture, here's the truth. Scripture actually does not teach anything about a rapture. The rapture itself is not actually a biblical teaching. And this is why I say that. So when we look at Scripture, we look at a couple different things. One of the things we look at is history. Uh, because Christianity is a, about 2,000 years old. There have been a lot of smart people who have been studying the Bible and following Jesus for 2,000 years. And any time we have a new belief come up, uh, we want to dig into that um, because like, we, we don't discard every new belief. But over 2,000 years, there have been a lot of sharp people looking at Scripture. And so if something new comes up and someone notices something in Scripture that nobody else has ever seen before, it's okay to ask, well, like, why did nobody notice this before? And the rapture itself is actually a fairly recent belief. So actually it was a, a little bit less than 200 years ago that someone first started teaching about the rapture. And we talk about the rapture, and if you're interested in end times, you've dug into these passages, but there's basically a two primary passages that we talk about when it comes to the rapture. One is Matthew 24. And Matthew 24, uh, we've probably heard those verses and that talks about how, you know, two guys will be walking along, along and one taken and the other left. Uh, there'll be two women uh, going about doing stuff and one will be taken, the other left. So we read that and that's part of the place that people got the idea of a rapture. Uh, the second place is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. And that's the verse that says, you know, when, when Jesus comes down with the voice of an archangel, we're going to be caught up in the clouds with him. So this is why I want us to look at this. Because looking at Scripture, we want to look at context, because context is a big deal. 
And so let's look first at Matthew 24. So Matthew 24 is that passage where, again, you know, it says two people will be walking along, one's taken and the other left. But let's look at the beginning of that section. And so anytime we read a verse in Scripture, like we can make Scripture say anything we want if we only take a verse at a time. Or if we combine a couple verses that we cherry pick, we can have Scripture teach anything at all. So that's why we look at context. So when we look at a verse, we look at the verses that come before it and come after it. So this is what it says in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. All right, so the reason I don't think the rapture is actually a a biblical thing is because we look at the context, and the context talks about, as in the days of Noah, so it's going to be when the Son of Man comes. And in the days of Noah, it wasn't the good people that were taken, and the bad ones left. It was actually the reserve, the reverse, right? I mean, Noah was the godly man, and he stayed. It was the flood that washed everybody else away. And, and when we look at Revelation, Revelation teaches that. I mean, we go down to Revelation, and Revelation talks about a new earth and how Jesus is going to be on the new earth. And so the rapture, the idea that like God's people go up to God and, and the other people stay here, the people who don't know Jesus stay here, that's actually backwards. Because in context, Jesus and Matthew is saying it's like Noah. And Noah was the one who stayed. The godly person stayed on the earth, and it was the, the lost people who were taken. Then the verse from 1 Thessalonians is the other one we talk about. 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, 4.17, I'll read this. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, so the context of this is 1 Thessalonians, it was the church in Thessalonica. And the church in Thessalonica, uh, they had heard about Jesus from Paul, they started following Jesus, but then some Christians started dying. And they knew Jesus was coming back again, but they expected it in their lifetime. And all of a sudden, they expect Jesus to come back, but then they have relatives that are dying. I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus, but then my dad passes away, and now he's dead. And and so the question they had for Paul is, like, is Jesus coming back? And and what happens to, like, my dad, who was a Christian, but died before Jesus came back? So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, he starts back in verse 13, and you can read that section if you want. Uh, where he says, now I don't want you to be ignorant about people who've died. He said, they're actually better off than we are. They're with Jesus already. And when Jesus comes down, they're going to be coming with him. And then that verse in verse 417, where he says, we're going to go up and meet him in the clouds. That was actually, the Greek word there was a specific word that people would use to meet like a king who was coming to their town. So if a king was coming to their town, you wouldn't wait till the king is in your town to greet him. Instead, what you would do is you would go out and you would meet him before he got to your city, and then you would come back with him. And so this was a word that was used like when Caesar went somewhere like this, you know, this party, this greeting party would come out from a city and meet Caesar and then walk back to the city with him. And so again, the idea here is that like people have died, they're already with Jesus, but when Jesus comes down to earth to reign forever, His people are going to come with Him. And then those of us who are here, I mean, just like a king, we're going to greet Jesus as early as we can and then come back with Him. 
And then we know Revelation, this is the last chapter in Scripture, verses 1-3 through of Revelation 22 say this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So, our future, you know, sometimes we talk about as Christians of we're going to go up to heaven. And if we die, we go to heaven to be with Jesus. But at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a new earth, and Christians will be with Jesus on the new earth. And Jesus will be right there with us. And so when we talk about the idea of a rapture, rapture is actually, in context, we don't see it as a biblical thing because Jesus is actually coming down to earth to be with His people. And so Revelation then, Revelation never uses the term rapture at all. And if you want to learn about Revelation, uh, we did a sermon series on that last fall. And I'd encourage you, if you really want to dig in, just go back and just watch those sermons. Um, and, and then dig into Scripture and see Revelation in context. So, what does the Bible teach about pre-tribulation rapture? Uh, really, nothing. Um, because, because it doesn't talk about rapture. And so, but the idea that, like, as we look at those verses, we want to look at them in context and just make sure that we understand, like, contextually what's going on there is really important as we get into some of the next questions. The next question is this. Now, I really liked this question. If God is good and He made me, how can my desires be evil? And I would guess, you know, if, if we've spent some time and thought, this is a question that probably a lot of us have had at one time or another. Like, if God is all good and He made me, and God's all-loving, then how can my desires be evil? So, uh, there's a couple answers here, but let's jump to these three questions first. Go ahead. Is this a salvation issue? No. No, salvation issues are, if I follow Jesus, if I'm a follower of Jesus, that is the salvation issue. Is Scripture clear about this, though? Yes. Does it affect my life? Yes. Um, Because knowing, like, desires is is a big deal all right so we know this we know we can't always trust our desires right i mean uh, i mean i I have a uh uh, a 10 month old and you know looking at her like is it's just crystal clear to me i I can't always trust her desires you know yesterday when i painted the basement we turned the furnace off for a while uh, so i had a fire going in our fireplace and uh, at one point i was uh you know like, I, I just hadn't watched it for a while, and I looked, and the flames had died down. So I was leaning forward, and I was blowing on it to get the flames back up. And uh, all of a sudden, I kind of sensed a presence beside me, and I looked, and here's Jocelyn right beside me getting ready to crawl into the fire. You know, because she saw these bright lights in there, and that was cool, and she wanted to touch her, right? So I, I looked at that, and I knew her desire was not good, but she still had that desire. I wonder sometimes if God looks at us that way. We know, um, this is what we read, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. All right, so we know God's all good. We know also that God created us with free will. Uh, we know that we're all sinners, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So desires, desires like a lot of other things, um, just get twisted a little bit. 
And so the desires, sometimes it's not that the desires that we have are evil. They just get twisted a little bit and out of whack. I mean, if you go back way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, you know, the, the serpent, Satan came into the serpent, was having a conversation with Eve. And, and all he was doing, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to blatantly change something. He was just trying to twist her desires a little bit. If you go to Jesus' temptation, you can read about that in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. You know, Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, Satan comes up to him, and all Satan is trying to do is just twist those desires just a little bit. Like, Satan comes up, and he's like, hey, Jesus, you're hungry, and God's given you power, so, you know, if God's powerful, you can make those stones into bread. And Jesus, Jesus knows that God has this other plan for him, and Jesus says, you know, yeah, you don't live by bread alone. And then Satan, you know, after that says, well, Jesus, tell you what, like, you could show everybody who you are just by jumping off this tower, and God's angels will catch you, and then you'll, they'll realize you're from God. And Jesus, you know, answered with Scripture because he knew that, like, that wasn't God's plan for his life. Basically, he, he would have been shortcutting the hard work of being Jesus that he was going to do for the next couple, three years. So our desires get twisted a little bit. And if we look at most sin in our life, um, a lot of those come from desires that, that at their core are not bad desires. We just get them twisted. You know, I, I, I used to do college ministry with uh, a lot of young men. And there's this deep desire in, in everybody, but I would see it in these, these young men, this deep desire for intimacy. You know, and, and, and they, wanted, they wanted just that, that intimacy that, that we all yearn for, that, that we find first of all through Jesus, but, but a lot of us find in, in marriage. And, and so they were born with this desire, but they would shortcut it, and then they would find themselves struggling or addicted to pornography because they were trying to, trying to shortcut that desire. Or, or we have this desire of, hey, I, I want to be, be a hard, successful worker, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then we catch ourselves cutting corners to get there and, and doing something unethical or dishonest um, as we try and get to that point. And, and the desire to be a, a successful worker, a good steward of what God has given us, that's not a bad desire. But when we twist it a little bit and don't do things in the right way, it, it's not as much that the desire is evil, it's that as people, we're fallible and we shortcut that. This is the way James talks about it in James 1, 12 through 17. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And, and if we trace basically any sin in our life, we, we can trace it back to a trial, right? Some big trials, some little trials, where, where we find ourselves in a trial where it's like, hey, am I going to do this the right way or can I shortcut something? Because almost all sin is just shortcutting something. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So in a nutshell, God's perfect. God creates us with free will. We have desires, and in, in almost every one of those desires, I think I can even say every desire, 
Like when we look at its core, it's, it's not a bad desire. It's a desire for something good that God has made that we just shortcut or twist a little bit. And then we find ourselves being tempted. We find ourselves in a trial. And then we don't always remain steadfast. But then we also know that there's that promise. And I'll quote this verse probably more than any other. 1 John 1, 1.9. 1 John 1, 1.8 says, you know, if we claim to be without sin, we're liars. Truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins... Jesus is faithful and just. He purifies us from all unrighteousness and cleanses us from sin. And so I don't know a single person who makes it through every trial in life without sin. And and I mean, it's biblical. I mean, that shouldn't surprise us. But Jesus also says that when we find ourselves in that position, we confess, we repent, and He takes care of it. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't ever consequences, but that means that we're set right, we're righteous in God's sight again. So, um, so Beck, if God is good, He made me, how can my desires be evil? Uh, because I twist Him. The way James says it is that, is that my desires, and the more I become like Jesus, the more my desires are actually not my desires, they're His desires, is I turn more and more of my life over to Him, and I look more and more and more like Jesus then I find out that, that the desires that I think are mine are actually Jesus' desires that are coming out through me. But as I'm going through that transformation, I've got to be careful because I have a lot of desires that try and twist the good stuff Jesus has for me. All right, let's do, uh, let's do one more question. This question is, uh, it was written up, order of priorities in life according to Scripture. God, family, country. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the, or, you know, I've heard that phrase different times, you know, that, hey, these are, these are kind of our three priorities, right? We, we have God, we have family, we have country. And, uh, and I get that. I mean, for me, like, obviously, uh, let's see, Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I get God, God is absolutely first. Um, and then, you know, family is a big deal. I mean, I love Lori more than any person in this world. And, and right behind her is this little girl with Lori's eyes and my stubbornness, right? And th- those are my two favorites. And, and if it were just up to me, you know, if, if like something were to happen and I could only save two people in this room, um, if it were just up to me, sorry guys, but you know, those, th- those two are, are where I'd go, right? Bruce like thumbs up. So I get that. And then, and then, and then we talk about country, Right? And, and, and how we, we value, love, you know, whatever term there are for our country. So as we look at this question and say, our order of priorities in life, according to Scripture, when we look at Scripture, what does Scripture teach us? Well, Scripture teaches us very clearly, and this is how I would rephrase it, is that we don't have three priorities. Is that we have one priority. Jesus says it this way, Matthew 6.33, that verse again, seek, or that verse I read, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And these other things will be added to you as well. And in there, he's talking about worry and anxiety. And he's saying, look, just, just seek first God's kingdom. We don't have multiple priorities. We have one priority. And that's seeking first the kingdom of God. So with that, under that, there are some pretty clear directives. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your, wife. love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and so clearly, like, Scripture, within Scripture, my priority is God's kingdom and being a citizen of God's kingdom. 
under that, I have a responsibility to my nuclear immediate family. Um, you know, once I made my marriage vows with, with Lori, you know, I, I, made, I made a vow that is the second closest covenant in my life, right behind my covenant relationship with God. And so I have Lori, um, I provide spiritual leadership for our family, we partner together to raise our daughter. That's our next priority. Here is our, our next priority after that. Jesus once was asked, what is the most important commandment? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. This guy came up to Jesus and just said, hey, what's the most important commandment? And this is what Jesus said, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when Jesus was asked about priority, he said, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. If we go to Luke 10, um, we don't have time to read it today. You can read it. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And you can see how Jesus defines neighbor. So with that, and I know this is a whole lot longer than just six minutes. And we can have this conversation. I'd love to have this conversation. But my first priority is a citizen of God's kingdom. And I, I am proud to be an American. Uh, I am very, very, very grateful to live in a country where we have the freedoms that we have, where I have a voice, where I get a vote about the leadership of our country. But I am not an American first. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom first. And if being a citizen of God's kingdom is ever at odds with my priorities as an American, there shouldn't even be a question about which one of those comes first. I mean, you know, I read a quote that I really liked. It was a, a guy said, there's, a, there's not a clear biblical mandate to love your country, but there is a clear biblical mandate to love people. People better be my priority. And, and so we can look at a whole bunch of other verses. One of my favorites in John 13, 35, Jesus says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So when we talk about priorities, I don't know that we can talk about three different priorities. Because we have a, our, our priority is God's kingdom. Um, you know, Jesus in Luke 9.23 said, If anyone wants to come after me, uh, you just take up your cross daily. And you know, he says, if you want to gain your life, you need to lose it. Anyone who loses his life for me will actually find it. We have one priority. It's to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then what we do is we make sure everything under that lines up with that. And so I know that I have a biblical call to love my family. I know I have a biblical call to love brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one of the reasons we get together for church, and one of the reasons that we take care of each other as a church family, because Jesus pretty clearly said, look, the way that some people are going to see that you're Christians is by how you treat each other. And then we also know, and we're going to talk about this a lot more in depth uh, next week and the week after as we get into some more questions about politics, we also know that, that we have a biblical a biblical uh, directive or biblical opportunity based on the apostles and Jesus to participate in the functioning of our government. And so with that, we ought to take that fairly seriously as well. But that falls under my priority as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Because I'm a citizen there first before I'm anything else. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom before I'm a husband, before I'm a father, before I'm a pastor, before I'm a friend, before I'm an American, before any of that. And everything then that I do in every area that I live my life in better fall under that umbrella of being a citizen 
of the kingdom of heaven because seek first his kingdom and then you're going to find out everything else falls under that so i think we're gonna we're gonna end there for today uh, this is always one of those where you know we cover like five five or six different questions and we don't really have like a clear invitation i mean you know when, when we're working through a section of scripture it kind of leads us to a decision point but this is just what i, I would ask today you know as as we're reading through these um, the verse that I t- put at the top of the bulletin, the verse we're going to keep there for the next couple weeks, is just that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. is that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful t- for teaching, correcting, training, rebuking, uh, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the things that we do with these questions, or actually the thing we do with these questions, we take, I take each of these questions, I bounce them off other people, but try and dig in and say, what does Scripture have to teach us? Because if Scripture is God's Word, we ought to take it pretty seriously, and it ought to not just form the way we think, but also form and impact the way we live our life, the way we act. So, the, the question I have for you guys is just, you know, man, let's dig in together. Are you digging into Scripture? You know, as you're reading these questions, um, I know I read these questions, and a lot of times I, I have a knee-jerk reaction to them, especially some, some, of the, some of the political ones. I read those, and I'm like, man, I, I, I got it. And then I go back and look at Scripture and dig into Scripture, and I realize sometimes that, that my knee-jerk reaction or my, my first response is not always a biblical response. And so the challenge I just want to have for us today is, man, there's, there are some really, really simple things that we look at where it doesn't take a lot of digging to get to the bottom or say, hey, this is a clear biblical mandate. But you guys know this, life is complicated. And we might have godly folks dig into Scripture and come up with, with two different things as we're earnestly seeking after God's heart. And as we're working through these questions, you know, if, if you have a question or you have some pushback, man, I'm, you know, I, I am fully open to the idea that uh, there might be Scriptures that, that I just haven't seen or that, uh, or that I'm looking at and, and need, to, need to look at in a different light. Man, I, I try really hard to dug in, dig into Scripture, but let's just do that together over these next three or four weeks. You know, if you're here today and, and you heard the question, you know, how do I know I'm going to heaven? You know, if you don't know the answer to that, don't leave today without talking to somebody. Um, we're going to have communion after this, and then we're going to sing one final song. And at the end, end of that song, if you come by the drum set or just stay in your seat, we have some godly women, godly men who'd love to talk with you about knowing that you're going to go to heaven. Um, because really... But that's, that's what we exist for as a church. You know, Jesus, the very last thing he told his disciples is let's go and make disciples. You know, we do that two different ways. Uh, we convert people, we baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we teach them everything that I have commanded you. And, and that, whole, that whole conversion, that whole becoming a follower of Jesus is a big deal. And, and that's not the end of the journey, that's really the beginning of the journey. A lot of what we do here is then teaching everything that Jesus commanded. But we can't learn everything Jesus commanded and get the full benefit of that unless we know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, don't leave today without knowing him. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then uh, we're going to have our communion meditation right after that. Uh, Jesus, it's good to be here. Jesus, thank you for uh, just your word and and the principles and the answers that we see in the word to, uh, to questions um that we have some questions that that we may not have but others have and and we just get to dig in and look through scriptures together Um, jesus i just pray that that today anybody who's here who doesn't know you uh, wouldn't leave today without having a conversation Um, jesus i pray that as as we're going through life this week 
God, just make us people of the book, people who, who dig into Scripture and look hard to find the answers that, that you have for us. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.